you today from this title, The Elder's Great Joy. The Elder's Great Joy. Let me begin by saying this. My spiritual journey, much like your spiritual journey, I'm sure is important to me. I remember it vividly. Dimey and I were sitting at a table at a Dunkin' Donuts in the corner of the cafe. This particular Dunkin' Donuts was on Quill Roost. It doesn't exist anymore. It was a weekday evening, and I wanted to talk to her about something I had been wrestling with for weeks. You see, we had been together for a couple of years at this point. We were engaged to be married My major at the time was secondary teaching. I had completed my hours. I had my AA, but I couldn't get out of the Bible. And I couldn't stop reading books that taught me about Christ and Christianity. I was arguing with my professors in class. Can you believe it? I was overseeing ministries at the church that we worshiped in. In short, it was becoming clearer and clearer to me that God was calling me into the ministry. But I wanted to talk to the woman who would be my wife because I knew some things about the pastoral office. I knew it wasn't a volunteer position. I knew that it was going to be extremely demanding. I knew it wasn't sought after because of the health and retirement benefits. There would be some sacrifices. I knew that it wasn't a job for just anyone. There's biblical criteria that has to be satisfied in order for a man to be a pastor, and his family is part of that. So there we were, sitting in that Dunkin' Donuts, that weekday evening. I think it was just the two of us, no one else in the place. And I told her, on the eve of our marriage, God's calling me into the ministry. I knew then, as I know now, God's calling in my life. As certain as it is daytime, I knew then, as I know now, God's calling in my life. But I also knew that the relationship that I would have with the woman who would be my wife would have to be completely sold out to the idea of God's calling. If that calling was going to be fulfilled in my life, then I wanted a woman who was going to be my wife and was going to be a part of that calling with me. And not only that, I wanted children that we would eventually have under the understanding that those children would be a part of that calling as well. I wanted a family that would submit good, bad, and ugly to the sovereignty of God, to the plan of God, and to the purpose of God, not only in my life, but in the lives of those who God would give to us to make a family. It certainly hasn't always been easy, but God has been good to our family. God has blessed 
our family. And we are, all four of us, committed to God's providence and God's plan. I introduce our text today with that story because we're going to talk about the relationship between God's commandment and an elder and his church. If this dynamic is understood, then you can clearly understand what we're going to discuss in our first point, and that is this, the elder's joy. Let me introduce you again to 2 John. Look at it with your eyes as I read aloud. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace with you, uh, will be with us, excuse me, from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, in truth and in love. This is what I want us to focus in on today. I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. First, let's assess this scripture and see the elders' joy. You recall from last week that the Apostle John is our author, but here he is referring to himself as the elder, a term that denotes not only his age, but also his ecclesiastical function as a church leader. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth as we were commanded by the Father. There's a couple of things that are worth noting here. First of all, I want you to note the source of his joy. I want you to note the source of his joy. John the Elder is plain and simple here. The source of his joy is found in the fact that the church is walking in the truth. He isn't joyful because of their fundraising campaigns. He isn't joyful because of their branding. He isn't joyful because of their hired musicians. He isn't joyful because of their building or their campus. You can have millions of dollars in the account, the greatest musicians that money can buy, regenerate or unregenerate, an absolutely incredible campus, and a brand that's recognized all over the city or the country, and yet still be a church that does not honor God, but makes idols of men. Now, this doesn't mean that a small church of 25 or 30 people is by default a church that is faithful to God. It's not what I'm saying. But my point is this, as human beings, say amen if you're listening, as human beings, we tend to measure success by those points of approval that we can see with our eyes. As in, that church is large, they're large therefore it must be blessed by God. But the truth of the matter is, is God weighs the heart and God weighs faithfulness. Faithfulness to the gospel, and as John the Elder says here, faithfulness to the truth. And here John is saying, not that he's joyful about this, that, or the other thing, but that he's joyful because they're walking in the truth. 
As the Good News Bible translates it, he says, how happy I was to hear you were living in the truth. It's pretty plain, isn't it? This fact should be central to any church, and it should be from the minister to the member, from the pastor to the parishioner, from the elder to the elect. Every elder pastor who has a church walking in the truth is happy and joyful to know that the church is walking in the truth. That is the priority. What truth? Well, David Jackman writes this. He says, The truth of God revealed supremely in the living word, who is Jesus, and recorded in the unerringly written word, provides the route by which the Christian is traveling from earth to heaven. The truth of Jesus, the truth that is recorded in the word of God, that is the truth that is the source of the elder's joy. But I want you to note, secondly, the extent of his joy. And we've seen the source of the elder's joy. But I also want you to note the extent of the joy. Now, we always aim to be faithful to a text. It's not important what I think. It's important what God thinks. It's not important what I say. It's important what God says. And as we endeavor to do that, I can't help but to see in this verse what I am interpreting as an extent, a degree, if you will. Look at it again, if if you would. Verse 4, it says, I rejoiced greatly to find what? Some of your children walking in the truth. Now, I'm working through a number of commentaries, not to mention other works, as I prepare and do research for our messages week in and week out. Some commentaries take this verse one way. Other commentaries take it another way. But I can't help but to think that it would be unwise for us to simply chalk up this verse as a general reference to people. I can't help but to read this and see something. I don't think he's, I don't don't think, I don't think, What's being said here is, well, I'm I'm happy to hear that there are at least some people who are walking in the truth. It's probably unwise to overplay our hand here, but it's important to note that the remainder of 2 John deals with false teachers and false Christians. For example, he says that there are deceivers in verse 7. He tells them to watch themselves in verse 8. And then finally, in verse 10, he says not to receive someone who doesn't believe the truth. However you look at it, church, I think that it's safe to say that we all can grow in faith and allegiance to Jesus. Amen? And I think that John is saying here, at the very least, that he has heard and met some people in that, tr- in that church, and he knows that they're walking in the truth. But he's not going to be arrogant, presumptuous, and assume that they're all walking in the truth. I have great joy to know that at least some of your people are walking in truth, he says. There's an extent to his joy. There's a degree to his joy So however you look at it, I think it's safe to say 
that each and every one of us, myself included, can grow in our faith and allegiance to Jesus. John is grateful and joyful for those who are walking in the truth, but the question falls to us today. Are we among those who are walking in the truth? Do we reason like the world, or do we reason according to the Scriptures? Do we talk like the world talks, or do we talk the way the Scriptures teach us to talk? Do we act like the world, or do we act in accordance with the Scriptures and the biblical paradigms? Or are we living our lives in accordance with the truth? I can relate to what John is saying here. There is no greater joy to me than to see you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. There is no greater joy to me than to see you successfully overcome obstacles in your life through the gospel. There's no greater joy to me to see you practice the spiritual disciplines in such a way that you're more mature this month than you were last month. There's no greater joy for any pastor who is serious about his calling. There are a lot of things that pastors brag about today. But there's only one thing that the Father has offered to us bragging rights for, and that is faithfulness to his truth as we walk in the truth. Which leads to our next point. Not only the elder's joy, but secondly, the father's command. This is the second part of verse 4. If you look at it again, it says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the father. So secondly and finally, we're going to see the father's command. It's made reference to here. John the elder doesn't bother approaching this topic from an apologetic perspective. In other words, he's not trying to convince the church that they should obey the word of God. Today, you kind of have to ask that question. It used to be that if there was a church, you assumed they were using the Bible. Today, it's not that way. Today, there are buildings full of unregenerate people who use the name church. They don't believe Jesus. They don't believe the word of God. But in this case... John pulls no punches. He's not arguing for God's command. He's assuming that as regenerate believers, as born-again Christians, they're listening and paying attention to and obeying the commandments of God. To that end, I'll say this. Faith in Christ comes with expectations. Amen? Faith in Christ comes with expectations. Now, I know we all come to God with expectations. We're like, I don't like sin, and hell sounds really unattractive. I'd like to be forgiven and live for eternity in heaven with God. That sounds wonderful. I'll choose option B. We've got expectations of God to fulfill that demand. But when it comes to God's expectations of us, that's a different conversation. Faith in Christ comes with expectations. It's partly why we do membership the way that we do in our church. 
Because if you're going to be a member of this church, there are expectations. People within the church have expectations of each other in Christ. Of course, even people outside the church have expectations of people who claim to be in Christ. This is why you turn on CNN or whatever other horrible news network that you watch. You see people who don't believe anything at all bring quote-unquote orthodox Christians on because they want to know if they really believe what everybody in the world knows Christians believe. Even liberals who have nothing but agnosticism and atheism to speak about know that Christians are supposed to believe in a few things. You hear what I'm saying? We negotiate and we pry and we say, well, there's gray. And, and I don't want to talk about that sin. I really, want to, I really want to talk about this person's story. I don't even know what that means. But it's lingo today. It's lingo today in my generation's leadership and younger, and what we're seeing all over the Christian landscape are these young people who are talking about deconstructing. They're deconstructing, which means they're picking apart Christianity, and they are relieving themselves of the burdens of expectation. That's how I interpret it. Because they want to be not just Christians, but homosexual Christians. They want to be not just Christians, but, but Christians who picket for abortion. They don't want to just be Christians. They want to be Christians that have women in the pulpit. They don't want to just be Christians. They want to be Christians who, you fill in the blank. They want every aspect of liberalism inserted into what they believe Christianity should be rather than what God's word commands. Well, this is why we can't assume anymore that just because a building outside uses the word church in its name, it's a Bible-believing church. We believe in the sanctity of life here. Period, the end. Neither the Republicans or the Democrats created this. God created this. And he has not given to you and me the right to decide whether or not two people should decide if they should end the reasonable consequence of two sexually healthy people having sexual intercourse. This is how it happens. This is not a contraceptive. We don't have the right. As Christians who have placed upon them by the Father in heaven godly expectations to say that there are 50,000 genders or five genders or three genders. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 say God created male and female. You don't get to play around with it. You can play around with it, but you can't be a member of this church and play around with it because we don't play around with it. We have expectations. 
You might know somebody who is an absolutely wonderful homosexual. We have friends in our family. They're fantastic people. But they're not living the will of God. And it doesn't mean we wave signs in their face and take every single opportunity to defame them. That's not Christian behavior. Those are not the options, by the way. You know what I mean? When a man runs out on his wife or a wife runs out on their husband and, cre- and, and, and commits adultery, that is a sexual sin. Homosexuality is a sexual sin. Those two things are different. It's just we tolerate one and the other one we say, no, that's not right. But what's happening as a result of us, us, not being fair-handed with the word of God, is we have made some sins tolerable and other sins intolerable, and that's not biblical. We need to love, we need to respect, we need to honor, because this is God's expectation of us. Our world is lost It's surprised and rebellious against the very idea of expectations at all. I think that so-called Christians who twist the clear meaning of Scripture on issues like gender, sexuality, or salvation exclusively through Jesus Christ doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe sincerely. No, that's not biblical. You can do that, but you can't refer to yourself as a Christian if you do that. That group of people, in the end, they know who they are. Even the world knows who they are. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. And here John reminds the church that the Father has commands, the Lord has expectations, and the command, the expectation, is that we adhere and we abide in the truth. It's not negotiable. It's not an option. The Bible has a lot to say about truth, both in the Old and New Testaments. I have some scriptures that are going to come up here on the screen. You can write them down if you like. A couple of them from the Old Testament. One of them is Psalm 51, verse 6. You delight in truth and the inward being. Psalm 86, verse 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, so that I may walk in your truth. Those are a couple of Old Testament references. Listen to some New Testament references. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 6. This is a text that we've all heard, whether we realize it or not, because when you go to a wedding, everyone reads 1 Corinthians 13. Now, I heard that I do the best wedding ceremony. It may or may not be true. It's just what I've heard. I also read this text because it's a beautiful text. But what people fail to appreciate, I think, sometimes, because it gets used and reused and used so often, is this verse which says, love rejoices in the truth. In other words, you cannot say love is love. You cannot say I can't help who I love. The scriptures say Love only rejoices in the truth. 
If you are practicing something you think is love that is outside the realm of God's truth, what you're practicing is lust, not love. Love operates within godly boundaries. You didn't make the boundaries. I didn't make the boundaries. God did. Now, we deal with the baggage of our decisions, don't we? We deal with the baggage of our decisions. And then we go to God and we say, look at this mess you've made. The reality of the matter is love doesn't rejoice in whatever makes you feel happy. Love rejoices in the truth. Here's another verse, John chapter 8, verse 32. These words are in red, so this means that Jesus is speaking here. So Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, he said, If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. I find it interesting in a recent parade that happened in our country. that one of the men who apparently has a fetish to wear a leather mask that makes him look like a dog had a child in a cage. And what's interesting about what's happening in our country is not only are the men not stepping up and being men with or without Christ, But I hear very little from the church about this ungodly behavior. And if an adult wants to go in the dark corner of his house and act like a fool, he can do that. But at what point do we as a country, at what point do we as a church point out something like that and say, tie a brick around that guy's neck and throw him in the depths of the sea? Those aren't my words. Those are Jesus' words. Woe to this world, because sin will come. But woe unto the one through whom it comes. Anyone who leads one of these little ones astray, it would be better off that a milestone was tied around his neck and he was thrown into the depths of the sea because God judges people like that. Now, we're running around trying to be polite. The word of today, the word today is winsome which to me just sounds weak. When this is what's being shoved down our throats in our mind's eye, that it's okay because it's a certain month or because the guy's a homosexual. And we don't use pedophile anymore. We use someone attracted to youth. It used to be, it used to be that these things were taken care of. Now we throw parades for fools like this. And we're not allowed to do anything or say anything because we're unloving and unkind. We've lost our way. We've lost our way. It's interesting that the Lord uses these words. If you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And we've got adults putting children in cages. And people in the street <laughs> celebrating the sexual freedom that they have. God is going to judge us. And when 
he does. He might be doing it now. I think he is. John Calvin said, when God judges a nation, he gives them foolish leaders. I can't think of any more foolish leaders than the ones we have right now. And I don't really care. I'd rather have somebody I disagree with who can articulate their thought, their position, their argument. We are being led as a country down a road that is only getting darker and darker and darker. And Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, you shine as stars in the night. My question is, do you? Are you negotiating? Are you compromising? Have you forgotten the expectations? Have you forgotten the Father's command? Why is truth so important to God? Theologically, it's important to God because in Numbers 23:16, in Jude chapter, or sorry, Titus chapter 1, verse 2, it says that it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. Because his character and his nature is truth. He's holy, he's just, and he's honest. God cannot lie. It's impossible for him to lie. So why is it important for you and me to adhere to the truth, to adopt the truth, to live in truth in our lives? Because God is truth. God is honest. And he does not lie. Every time we dilute the truth, every time we negotiate on a point, Every time we fail to be the salt and light that God has called us to be. Listen, I don't need you to be salt and light in here. Iron sharpens iron, and that's what we do. But you're called to be salt and light out there. I don't need you to come in here and say those ungodly are being so ungodly. I need you to be out there and say ungodly. God is going to judge you for this. That's where it needs to happen. In particular, here in 2 John, I think John is making a reference to something special when he says that the Father has commanded us. I don't think he's just making a reference in general to the fact that God is truth, which is true, and that God speaks truth, which is true, and the fact that God is incapable of being dishonest, which is true. What I think he's specifically making a reference to is what he says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 23. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, John says, this is his commandment. Oh, yes, it's right there on the screen for you. This is his commandment that we what? That we believe. Now, in Greek... There is no verb believe. The verb for believe in the Greek is to faith. This is God's command, that we faith the name of his son. And that we love one another like he's commanded us. It's an easy diagnosis. I love counseling. I love meeting with people, families. I love that because 
it gives me an opportunity to help them see their life from the perspective of the Word of God. I know that some people shun counseling. They're afraid of even confessing that they might have gone to counseling. But in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says that when Jesus comes, he will be seen as a wonderful counselor. If Jesus can be called a wonderful counselor, I'm, I'll, I'm okay with counseling. Amen? Sometimes we need advice, guidance, perspective. The reality of the matter is, in this text, we're not asking whether or not we believe in Jesus, whether or not we love one another. What we're asking is, are we currently in a state of obedience? In other words, are we walking? The majority of the time, when someone has a challenge in their life, in their marriage, in their parenthood, whatever the case might be, They have stopped walking. You might be thinking, that's it? You might be thinking, that's a really simple explanation of what's implied here. And I want to say a couple of things to you. Yes, it's that simple, number one. And number two, God never intended for it to be complicated. You want to walk in God's truth? Yes and amen. Then believe in his son and love one another. That's it. It's not that complicated. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the Corinthian church, he said these words, When I came to you, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Simple. Jesus on the cross to die in the place of sinners like you and me. That's it. That's the gospel. Listen to this section of scripture at length. It's going to come up on the screen so you can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. Paul says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified it's a stumbling block for the jews and it's folly to the gentiles but to those who are called both jews and greeks christ is the what power of god and the wisdom of god because the foolishness of god is wiser than men and the weakness of god is stronger than men now get this Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose 
what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. I want you to get the emphasis of this passage, church. I want you to get the emphasis of this passage because Paul is saying, I'm preaching the gospel simple. Jesus Christ and him crucified for sinners. And and I know that when I preached that simple word, the Greeks were like, it's not wise enough for us. And the Jews were like, I have trouble believing that the Messiah died on a cross. I have trouble believing that. But Paul says, from the Jews and the Greeks, God has called his people. Did you get that? This is what I want you to see, the emphasis of the passage. He's saying that the church has been called and chosen because of what God has done, not because of what we've done. And because of what God did, we're in Christ. You see that thread throughout the idea here? The next thing I want you to note is the adverse attitude that the world outside the church has toward truth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says that non-Christians, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Non-Christians, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. And Romans 1.25 says that the world has exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What are we to do with this inspired text except to conclude that the Bible's view of the world is it's lost until God chooses to call whomever he will? You are in Christ, Paul says to the Corinthians, because God called you and chose you. Start acting like it. Start acting like it. Start representing the truth of God in the face of the world that suppresses the truth of God. We are not to be them, church. We are not to be them. We are to be men who raise men, women who raise women, and couples, married couples, who have children that we raise in the kingdom. That is God's design for us. That is God's purpose for us. That we represent as salt and light in the face of a tasteless and dark world who Jesus Christ is. And as often as they say, well, that's what you believe, we respond, no, that's the truth of God. Because the scriptures say they know what's true, but they suppress it. 
They suppress it. They come up with theories of animated videos of dogs becoming whales that become birds. And they go, well, if you give it 80 million years, this could be true. Contrary to every law in science. Well, we know we don't listen to science anymore. We got that far, right? We, we know that. Science is nothing but a wrench in the, whole, in, the, in the hands of politicians today. But truth is truth. And it has always been truth because God is incapable of dishonesty. have to be candid. Have I not been candid? That sounded silly. Let me continue to be candid and say that it sounds more foolish to believe what the world tells you to believe than it does to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You believe in a book that's thousands of years old? Yes. And you believe you came from an amoeba? with millions of years of luck and chance and everything else, in addition to the fact that you don't know what you are today or tomorrow, what you'll be in five years. Because you selfishly want to keep the right to be the God over your own life. And you have the right to do that. And you also have the right to fulfill the consequences of that decision. Eternally. So Jesus says, any man who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross every day. If you're going to be a Christian, you better carry a cross. I don't know what word you've been sold or what you've heard or who you've been listening to online, whatever, Furtick, Osteen, I don't care. It's not about motivation. It's not about three points to a successful whatever. Christianity is about carrying your cross. It's about faithfulness to the truth, especially when it's hard. In the face of a world that's disbelieving, against an enemy that would tear you down and tear your family down with great joy and pleasure. To close, let me say this. We're privileged to have a church that has stood for the truth since 1957. We're privileged to have a church that has been faithful to the gospel for a long, long time. But I want more. That's not enough for me. I want people to be afraid to drive by our church. 1 Samuel chapter 16, God tells Samuel, the judge and prophet, he says, Saul will no longer be the king. I'm removing my anointing from him, and I'm going to send you to Bethlehem. Bethlehem in the Hebrew, the house of bread. I'm going to send you to the house of bread, and the man who I will anoint as my king will be there. And Samuel said, I will go. 
And 1 Samuel 16 says that as Samuel approached, the elders heard that he was coming and they trembled. When was the last time you walked into the room and your reputation and your character and the presence of God in your life made everybody nervous before you were even there? Or is everybody telling you the same foul jokes at the water cooler as they are unbelievers because they know your convictions aren't worth much? Are you sharing the gospel with people? Are you taking opportunities because the country is giving you a thousand a day to represent the truth of God? Are you saying, well, that's what they're doing, but that's not God's design? Well, that's what they're doing, but that's not what I believe because the Bible says. How many times in the course of a day are you speaking up for truth? Your spirituality is not any different than any other muscle in your body. If you start to atrophy, you will become useless. And nobody needs weak, powerless, infantile Christians anymore. We need adults in Christ. The world is preparing a great battle for us. And I'm not concerned with Canada or Germany or China or what. I'm concerned about Cutler Bay. There's 50,000 people in Cutler Bay. This is what I want to know. What are you doing in Cutler Bay? To represent the truth of the crucified Savior for sinners like you and me. We don't have to change the whole world, church. I think we could do some, I think we could do some trouble right here in Cutler Bay. I want every single day when these how, however many thousands of cars drive by this campus, every single I hope they drive by, I hope they drive by in fear knowing that the power of God is on this campus. That they either turn in and say, I can't do it anymore, I need to hear the gospel, or they run in fear knowing that if they get too close, the hand of God will get them. I want the power of God here. I want the light of God shining in your life. Because now is the time. I have great joy, John says. Because I've heard that you're walking in the truth. That's my challenge for us today. Are we walking in the truth? Non-negotiable. Respectful. Loving. But unnegotiating. On this fact, God is truth. He has spoken truth. And I will not change my perspective on that.